Thanks, John. Ominous words do what needs to be done. Gosh. Feels nice to feel like you're ready for a slapdown. No, no, no. But today's message is actually a, a really exciting one. Um, and I, I've been loving working my way through Mark very, very slowly. Um, because there is, as we often find when we take time to slow down, there is depth and revelation and insight that maybe we don't see on our first pass. And particularly for the ministry of Jesus that is often so familiar to us, um, I love it when you suddenly see something that you've never seen before. And that was my experience this week. I want to share that with you. I was sitting down um, on Monday, um, Monday morning, and just kind of having a look at this passage. I'd been thinking about it for the last few weeks, but I was just sitting down there doing some work, getting some kind of thoughts together, and God made these kind of connections. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen this before. And I hope that's your experience today as well as we work through uh, this text. Now, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, I really encourage you to go back and listen to kind of the journey we've been on, um, because there is this kind of trajectory through the ministry of Jesus that we need to kind of identify in order to keep understanding what he is doing. And today's passage is no exception. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, feel free to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. If you've got your device, go for that too. It's okay. I will not be offended uh, because, of course, I know you're reading the Bible and, uh, and we're going to work through this, but it will also be on the screen as well. So here we are, Mark chapter 1, 21 to 22. Jesus has just called his first a lot of disciples and now we're into the business. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Now, that's a really fascinating kind of setup to this whole situation. So Jesus has called his disciples. He's declared what his intention is for his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he's gone to the synagogue, essentially kind of the religious place where people would gather and he began to teach. And apparently he made an impression because suddenly the people who would have been exposed to teaching on a regular basis, they noticed something different about the way that Jesus was teaching. And what they described was him as one who had real authority, right? Real authority. I mean, that's a little humbling, actually, as someone who you know, tries to come up here and, and share things from time to time. You know, but suddenly, there are some people who kind of carry this real authority, and that is what the people noticed. Now, this idea of authority is not a new idea. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I, I spoke about um, Jesus' baptism and how this idea of authority was actually bestowed upon Jesus in that moment, with not only the voice of John the Baptist as an authoritative voice, but also the voice of God actually bestowing authority upon him, two voices. Now, this authority is, I suppose, something that is not so familiar to us today because we establish authority by other means. Sometimes it's by role. Sometimes it's by character. But this particular authority that was being referred to was this authority. And it's got a great word in the Hebrew. It's called shmika. It's a great word to say, shmika. And it's a very significant word because it carried a story with it. So when we look at Jesus speaking with authority, that isn't just someone saying, yeah, what he had to say was pretty darn good. 
They're saying there is something special about the way and what Jesus is saying. Now, Shmika was actually a uh, considered to be a passed-down authority. So similar to in some church traditions how there is a certain kind of spiritual authority passed down through the papal or the pope and, and that kind of thing, generation to generation, Shmika was the same but in Jewish tradition. And their first rabbi, their first uh, spiritual leader was Moses. Moses was considered to be the first rabbi, the first teacher with this shmika because, of course, he was the one who got to have the revelation from God, right? He was the one who was given the Torah. He was the one who was given the way to live. And so along with that came this authority, otherwise sometimes translated this spirit of wisdom. And the understanding was that this authority could be handed on. It could actually be passed on. That's what this word shmika actually means. It means to pass on. And we see this happening in Deuteronomy as he passes on this spirit of wisdom to Joshua, his protege. We see here in Deuteronomy 34.9, now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. That's shmika, right? Because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. So you have to understand when people are saying, hey, this guy in the synagogue is teaching as one with authority, they're not just saying he's good. They're saying there is something that is going on in him that is to do with this passing down of authority that takes us all the way back to Moses. And the way that this shmik was passed on, particularly by the time of Jesus, was two authoritative voices who also had Shemekah would lay their hands on another and pass on that authority. Now, this actual process ceased in around 250 to 300 AD, okay? It actually stopped. But during the first century, well and truly active. So let's continue this. So this is what they're noticing. They're saying, Jesus has this Shemekah. That's interesting, right? He speaks as one with authority. Suddenly, classic Mark, suddenly... A man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil or in the Greek unclean spirit cried out, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And and I love this, right? Because there is Jesus. He's gone out. He's been baptized. He's been tempted. He's chosen a few people to come follow him. He's stepping into his ministry. And of course, like it feels like day one, right? And you're facing up against this adversary. I don't know if you've ever kind of gone into a new job and like day one can be a bit nerve wracking. You're like, oh, you know, let's hope it's just orientation. But suddenly what you end up with is this massive adversary of, you know, four years worth of work that didn't get addressed from the last person who was in the role. And you're like, come on. Right? I, I, like, I don't know if Jesus felt that. Jesus is far better than me, of course. But I'm like, come on. But we, we almost had to anticipate, right, that there was going to be an adversary. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when we are genuinely going out as people on mission every day and we're entering into environments, right, where there is um, unclean, evil, uh, adversarial spirits at work that we actually have to face them. I, I think one of the things that we kind of, particularly in Western culture, we sometimes kind of shy away from the idea of the spiritual, but particularly for some of our Indigenous brothers and sisters and for, for others as well, this is a very real part of our world. And so we need to be aware of it. But what I love this, and this is an encouragement for us who are there on the battlefield, right? The enemy knows what they are facing. It knows the threat it is facing. It's first words, 
Why are you interfering with us? Have you come to destroy us? Like a very clear understanding that this is how it's going to go down. You So for the enemy, right, for the enemy, for the adversary, if God wills it, this situation will not be a fight. Sometimes as Christians we can fall into that trap. It's just like, here we go, I'm going into the fight. And sometimes that can be helpful. But what the enemy knows, that if God wills this situation to take pass, this is not going to be a fight. This is a foregone conclusion. Have you come to destroy us? Like, is that what's about to go down? Because we know who you are, right? So there is a real battle going on. There was a real battle going on here, and there's a real battle going on in Alice. And sometimes it is kind of the spiritual works that are are taking place that we need to speak into and against in the name of Jesus, but there's also the battles, almost the spirit sometimes in this place of things like apathy and cynicism, right? Sometimes, well, not sometimes, we see addictions, right? And we see people destroying their lives as a result of those things. Mental health, physical health, these are adversaries, right? These are things that are actually standing in the way of God's kingdom breaking through. And you kind of got to ask the question, when I face up to these things in my workplace or in my family, and, and these, like, does the enemy know that if God wills it, destruction is inevitable? Do we know that if we actually position ourselves in that place and we're ready to respond to the prompting of God, that actually the enemy will be destroyed? I think sometimes we don't know that. And that's why I find it fascinating that this first encounter took place in a synagogue, right? Because, you know, we expect the evil, unclean spirit to be somewhere else, right? I mean, but here was Jesus in the religious hub with the, with the Pharisees who were devoted to the text, you know, rightly or wrongly. And this was the spiritual place, and yet it is here, right, that the man with the unclean or evil spirit emerges. He was present in the synagogue with the religious people. And this raises a whole bunch of questions, right? So it's a whole bunch of questions. So were they not aware that this was going on in their midst? Like, were they not aware that there was an unclean spirit or an evil spirit within someone in their midst? It could have been just a state of ignorance. We're just not aware of that. Sometimes we can be a bit ignorant too. Maybe they felt powerless to do anything about it. They, they knew that there was this issue, this kind of spiritual issue within this person going on in their midst, and they, maybe they knew it, but they felt powerless against it. They didn't have the authority to speak against it, so they just let it be. A kind of apathy, you might say. Right? Or, interesting detail, notice when this took place, on the Sabbath, right? Important detail took place on the Sabbath, right? And we know later in Jesus' ministry, he is critiqued heavily for the kind of works that he performs on the Sabbath. Maybe it was that they knew, right, that this evil spirit or unclean spirit was present. And maybe they did feel like they had power to do something about it, but actually their rules around what they were allowed to do on the Sabbath were preventing them. Kind of a legalism. And, you know, here's a little bit of a rub for us, shall we, right? Because as much as we speak to that context and these really bizarre questions, right, 
let's be honest, how often do we succumb, right, to these same dynamics? There are times when we as the church, we, we know that there is a, an evil adversary that we need to respond to. And again, I don't want us just to get caught up in like, you know, the, the kind of possessions type of thing. I'm talking about the spiritual resistance to the kingdom of God within our workplace or other places. And maybe we feel like actually it's just easy to ignore it or we don't ignore it. We don't, sorry, we don't notice it. Maybe we kind of like feel powerless. It's like it's just, it's too hard. Or maybe we're like, that's for somebody else. <laughs> or we've got our own rules. I don't, I don't enter into that messy space. This is my spot for me and Jesus. You know, like we, we can fall into these same traps. So I don't say this to judge the people at the time. I just say, hey, let's just find our own story in this because we can be susceptible to these very same things. And while... This was all happening. I mean, what kind of trouble has this been, guy been up to? Like, what, what kind of damage has taken place? Regardless, we see Jesus respond. Reading from verse 25. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet. Come out of the man. Notice, very calm, very succinct, right? It's not so much drama as it is authority. Be quiet. Come out of the man. He ordered at that, the evil spirit screamed through the man into a convulsion and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such, there's that word again, authority. Even the evil spirits obey his orders. And the news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Now, as we're reading through this, do you notice something that might strike you as surprising in the people's response? Maybe surprising to the way we would react if a similar situation was to occur. You see, if this kind of thing were to happen in our church or in any other place, we might go, wow, what a great healing. Or we might say, what a great deliverance, or whatever language you want to adopt, right? That's what we would say. But their response is, what sort of new teaching is this? Do you notice that? Isn't that a weird detail? Like, do you not just realize what Jesus has done, right? Saving this person, right, from this evil spirit. And we would be like, healing, deliverance, woot, woot. And they're just like, whoa, that's some good teaching. Like, that should stand out to us, right? It should stand out as a little bit weird, right? But they have said this authoritative teaching that is, was so authoritative that even the evil spirits would obey it. And this is important for us as we seek to imitate Christ in his way that he goes about mission and ministry. You see, because what we see here is there is a truth about God and about this world and about how it ought to be, a truth that needs to be declared. Right? That's what this is going on. Jesus is declaring a truth over this man, over this spirit. And that is why it is a teaching. Because what does a teacher ideally do? They put forth truth. And so Jesus is adopting what is essentially this kind of prophetic mouthpiece. Now, as soon as I use that term prophetic, some people are going to be like, oh, you, know, you picture the person who stands up all wild and whatnot. But what we're talking about when we talk about the prophetic, right, the prophetic simply means to be the mouthpiece of God. That's what it means. 
When we engage in the prophetic, it means I am becoming the mouthpiece of God. If God wants to say something, I am communicating that, right? And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament, right? So this isn't something new. We literally see this in the Bible. A prophet is the mouthpiece of God. And what a prophet's role is to do is to speak that which is true. And that's what Jesus was doing. You see, when we, like Jesus, faithfully follow the instructions of our Heavenly Father, like if we're in that zone where we're like, I want to follow the instructions that God prompts within me, we too act as a prophet. And that might scare a few people. Because you mean like, prophet? Like I work in ED. We need more prophets in ED, right? I'm a teacher. I work as, we need more teachers who are prophets, And maybe not the picture of the prophetic that maybe you've even been scarred by, right? But this idea that we need people who are there to be the mouthpiece of God, declaring what is true, right, is so critical. And notice the way that Jesus approaches this. In John 5, 16 to 17, 19, we see how Jesus operates in this prophetic call. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, that's just a lovely little parallel there, right? (laughs) That's not even deliberate, but this is great. The Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 19, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Like this is, uh, depending on your perspective of Jesus and his ministry, this can kind of throw us a little bit too. But this is what Jesus would do. He lived his life and ministry kind of with clipped wings. His divine wings were clipped. And what he did was he had to ensure that he was fully dependent upon the Father for leading and direction. This is why he went out to pray, to seek direction. Where do I need to go next? What is God up to that I need to obey and perform or speak into. He's just doing what he sees his Father in heaven doing. So when it comes back to this man with an evil spirit or an unclean spirit, and those words silent come out, Jesus wasn't just acting in power, he was acting in the prophetic. Right? And this is really important for us to understand because that's why they're saying this is a new teaching and one with authority. Because this was about declaring what is true over someone. You, you might be here and you're like, actually, you're not convinced you can cast out an evil spirit. <laughs> All right? You're like, that's okay. Uh, I think most people I talk to, they're like, yeah, that's not really my thing. Um, right? But, but like that, that, that part of us, right, sometimes goes, like, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for, for someone else, right? But I want to tell you something. If God wants you to cast out an evil spirit and prompts you to do it, you have the authority. Right? Like you have that authority. Doesn't mean you have to go spirit hunting necessarily. Sometimes we try to do things in our own power, right? In our own authority, and we realize that there isn't much authority there to begin with, right? But if God the Father is doing a work and we are being prompted to step into that, you have that same authority. You have that call to be a prophetic voice within your workplace and your family, your social groups. And the truth is, if you choose to do that, guess what? You're going to face resistance. You're going to face resistance because you're operating, right, with the kingdom of God at hand and you're wanting to see that break through. But if we do that, God will start pointing out 
the things or the people that we are needing to respond to. I mean, I just think about even just hearing, Alice, a couple of examples, and, and you guys will have your own examples for sure. Like, you know, just the other day, I was um, spending a bit of time in the mental health unit at hospital, right, and chatting with a few people there. And, and, and like this, for me, like it's quite confronting, right, because it's just like I know that this is just like the surface, like this is just some, some pretty significant cases, but, but this kind of spiritual oppression and, and people either kind of getting addicted in, in various forms to things like social media that is defining their life and reality to the point of things like self-harm, right, like this stuff matters. We've got, we've got people who, who, are, who are fully depressed because they just don't see any hope and, and contribution and, and this is just scratching the surface and I go to a place like that and I go, ah. Oh, spirit here, right? As, as much as there are amazing people doing good work and responding to those things, like the spirit, here, like it, it breaks my heart, right? Because I'm like, oh, what would it look like for the kingdom to break through, not just in this place, but across Alice, you know? For those who have been involved um, and connected with like the women's shelter, right? We know issues around like domestic violence and stuff are prevalent, not just here in Alice, but certainly here in Alice, okay? And when you hear some people in their stories, it just breaks your heart. And you're like, that is not okay. Like there is an evil that is taking place that should not be. There are things, statements, words that people have absorbed that simply are not true about themselves, about the world, right? And that is inside of them. And unless that is challenged by what is true, unless that prophetic voice can come in and speak against that, then where? Where is the hope? Who's going to be these prophetic voices? All right, there's a big challenge. Now I'm going to come back to a really cool thing. So you know how I was talking a bit earlier about Shmika, right? So Shmika started with Moses. He's passing it on to Joshua, but he also passed it on to some others. It wasn't just Joshua. And we find this story in Numbers chapter 11. And we've all been reading Numbers recently, so uh, I figure, you know, just go to the page that's usual. Um, but this is really, really cool. Check out this story from Numbers chapter 11. So uh, just a bit of context. Uh, the Israelites, they're wandering through the desert, Right? It's a time of testing, it's a time of refining, it's a time of God establishing his covenant with them. They are going to be blessed to be a blessing to the world, and he's refining them through this process. Yeah? Okay. Numbers chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, because Moses was getting pretty overwhelmed, apparently having to look after a million people is hard work. And he says, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. Tent of meeting, special place, right, where God shows up in a special way. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit, Shmika, that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. So this is cool. Remembering... The tradition of Shmika, this is kind of where it starts, right there with first Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Moses. He wasn't called that back then, but that's what they called him later. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders that ha- and had them stand around the tent. 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the spirit, that spirit of wisdom, that shmicker, that was on him, Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Why should this not surprise us? Okay, right? Given what, we've, what we know, this should not surprise us. They prophesied, interestingly, but did not do so again. All right, interesting note. Spirit came down, they prophesied. This is the best bit though, check this out. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, I love it, just shame them by name. Two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So good, right? This is so good. This is back in numbers, right? This is back in the desert, okay? And we've got this tradition of shmika and authority being placed upon people and they're prophesying, right? And this is cool. God's like, hey, take the 70, get them around the tent. We'll get them prophesying. That's all going to be good. And then there's these two guys who just don't rock up. Like what, what caught their attention? You know, were they dealing with the kids? I, I don't know. But whatever it was, they didn't go to the special place. They didn't get to that special religious place that was going to be extra holy and where God was going to show up. And yet... At the same time, the Spirit still came down and worked through them. And I love that they were out in the camp. Like, they were out there. They went in the special place. They were out there. And then they're going and they're prophesying in the camp. They're doing the work. They're declaring truth. It is so cool. I love this so much, right? And I feel like Joshua's response, right, is a little bit like what we would respond with sometimes. It's like, that's not allowed, they didn't follow the rules. And Moses is like, what? You've like totally missed this Joshua, the first one who had my shmika, right? Don't think you're special here, bud, right? My wish, and I love this, my wish is that the Lord's people, were all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So good, right? They weren't at the right place. They weren't there at the right time. They were in the camp. And yet, the nature of God and his authority and his work is already evident here all the way back in Numbers. They are a picture, these guys, Eldad and Medad, they're a picture of those who are called, not because they're in a special place at a special time, it's this indication early on in the scripture that no one misses out. Those who God calls, he will use. And so for us today... All right, you need to understand that we are the fulfillment of this prophetic wish. Like we are. Like we are the fulfillment of that. With the spirit and the authority being cast out on all people, right? All followers of Jesus. And we have access to this same authority when we work through the New Testament, when we work through the ministry of Jesus, when we hit Pentecost, right? This is not an isolated story. This is the fulfillment of of what has been wished for at the beginning. And suddenly it's not some special little group of people in the right place at the right time. Everyone is called to prophesy. 
Everyone is called to have that shmika authority to declare truth in the place to which they are called. And this is an authority that makes the adversary tremble. Have you come to destroy us? It is this same authority. It's the same authority. And it's not something that we kind of grow within us. It is the authority that comes from God the Father responding in obedience to him. I mentioned the mental health unit. I was out there the other week and I was sitting down with um, Sabrina and Danilda out there. and It was really cool. And they were just talking about how even while they were in that space, they were praying. They were praying for the unit and they were praying for the people that they saw because the kind of stuff that, that God had done within, um, within them to bring about truth, they wanted that truth over these other people. And so they were praying. And they were praying boldly for that unit while they were in that place. It was really cool. I think about women's shelter and, and we think about how some of these women, they just know that they need to, well, they don't know, but we know they need to know that they are loved, valuable, cared for. And we can't always be the complete fulfillment of that, right? That's a, that's a God job. But even doing something like what Julie Laurie spearheads with the women's shelter bags at Christmas, right? It is not just about a bag. It is about truth. It is about authoritative truth that speaks through a collection of objects that speaks against whatever lies that people have absorbed that needs to be responded to. That bag is a prophetic work. Right? We're the ones who shy away. But God wants to leverage and use that authority that he has poured out because we are obedient to the Father just as Jesus was. Is it any wonder that in John chapter, 12, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, when he talks with his disciples, these people who he commissions to carry on his mission, the same mission from the beginning, he says these words, Very truly I tell you, disciples, that whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and they will do even greater works than these. Like even greater works, after the time we're like, no, 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 Jesus was the best. We couldn't do greater works. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus is talking about this same schmicker, this same authority. He's like, hey, my followers, you guys, you're going to do even greater works than these because it isn't about me. It's about this posture of obedience, responding to the need that is in front of us and bringing that prophetic voice into the darkness. You know, sometimes people ask me, it's like, because of how I preach and the content I use, like, I'm like why do you go back to the Old Testament so much? <laughs> like, why, do you, why do you talk about these roots so much? They don't dislike it, they just kind of wonder why. The reason we do this, right, is to help us understand that this whole thing is one big story when we look at that banner. It's one big story that Jesus was the fulfillment of, right? It's not a separate story. God has always been in the business of restoration. God has always been in the business of healing. He's always been in the business of calling people to be blessed, to be a blessing. It hasn't changed. And this beautiful parallel in numbers, I just think, speaks so boldly and provocatively to that. The truth is that God still wants to partner with us. He still wants to partner with us. We won't always get it right There'll be times when we feel prompted and we choose not to respond, right? There's times when we shy away or we get off the track and he's always just ushering us home because he wants to partner with us for us to wield this same schmicker authority 
as we face up to the challenges, the adversaries, whatever it is that God has positioned us to respond to. So, sweating. With this in mind, what does it look like for you? What does it look like for you to wield this authority? That might might just be a brand new concept. You're like, that's not even like... But you've got access to the same authority. Jesus said so. No take backs. So what's it look like to wield that? And, 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 And wielding that, right, means connecting regularly with God and the Father and and being obedient to his promptings. Again, this is not some sort of tool that we cultivate here on the side and then we wield when we want it. It's about being obedient to the Father just as Jesus was. So what does it look like to spend time with God and ask the question, so God, where, where is my adversary? Where are you calling me to go to war? Not with aggression and violence, but with truth, prophetic truth that cuts through the lies that people succumb to. Where is that place? Who is that person? It may just be that all of us need to spend a little extra time sitting with God. Just as Jesus did, taking time out to pray and being like, God, the need is immense. It wasn't different for Jesus. The need was immense. There was going to be a whole bunch of people that he wasn't able to respond to. Okay? He would respond to everyone through his death and resurrection. But in that moment in his ministry, the kind of ministry that we can seek to imitate in his words and his works and his ways, he was dependent on the Father to open his eyes to this is the thing I need to respond to. And if God, if you have laid this person in this situation in my path and you've placed that on my heart, God, may I use that authority to be emboldened to speak truth in this place. That's for every single one of us. God still wants to partner with you. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take a minute now And when I say a minute, I mean an actual minute. We're going to take 60 seconds. And to whatever extent you feel comfortable, actually to whatever extent you feel uncomfortable, take this minute and ask that question. Where God is the adversary, the evil spirit, the unclean spirit, spirit of falsehood, that I am called to confront. And I'm not going to do it in my own power, God. But we're going to ask the question because we don't want to be Ignorant, apathetic, or legalistic when it comes to participating in the kingdom of God. So let's take, take that, that minute. Let's take that minute now.
Jesus, whatever it is that you have brought to mind. We want to acknowledge, even if it was just a little flash. Jesus, you said you had to go, but that you would give and send the Spirit who would lead us into all truth. And so, God, we want to be led into truth because it's for our good and it's for the good of this world. And God, I especially want to pray for those of us who feel a bit confronted today to think that we are the fulfillment of Moses' wish. That we can speak with authority. Again, not that authority that comes from our own power, our anger or our aggression, but an authority that cuts through the lies that comes from you because you are working in people's hearts. There are adversaries that you want to see destroyed because they have no place in your kingdom. And so God, embolden us to pursue you. Embolden us to take time to ask, God, where are you leading? And Lord, for all the people and the places that have come and dropped into our mind, if right now they feel like black and white, I pray that you'll bring colour to them. Give us wisdom to know how to engage, how to respond, how to mobilise as prophets here in Alice Springs and across the nation and across the nations of the world. For your glory. Amen.